university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers, and we are heading into season three of the Deconstruction Workers, which seems really amazing to me that we have been able to have the blessing of having you join us for this long. Today on the show is longtime friend of the podcast, one of the core deconstruction workers, Dr. Lauren Kamachi. Dr. Kamachi is out in Pennsylvania, but not for very long because she's on her way to Ohio. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Glad to be back as always. How's moving? Horrible, but I think everyone who's ever moved knows that. I feel like my house should be featured on an episode of Hoarders. If I make it through this move without some broken toes, I'd be lucky because I keep kicking all the boxes, forgetting that they're there. It seems like a pretty common moving experience. Yeah. Where did all the who bought all this stuff? <laughs> right. <laughs> where, where did this all come from? Yes, and I keep just wandering aimlessly around my house, not actually packing anything, just looking at all of the things to pack, which is really very productive use of my time. Someone ought to get on this. There's so much much stuff over here that probably should go in a box. I wonder who's going to make that happen. Well, thanks for taking a, a short break from all that to hang out with us and the listeners today. It's truly my pleasure. So Lauren and I today are going to cover a subject that is pretty well understood within the academic community, but not so well understood by people outside of the academic community. And that is the idea of canon, what we mean when we talk about canon. Because when we talk about canon in academic popular culture spaces, it doesn't mean the same thing as it means in other places. So what I thought we would do today is maybe you and I break down at least a working definition of canon, which probably ought to take the entire show, mm-hmm. and then maybe apply that to a couple of texts to show people what we mean by that. And I think the first thing we ought to do is recognize that when we say canon, that's canon with one N, not two. Canons with two Ns go boom. Yep. Canon with one N That's what we're talking about. I'm glad you started there because I always would tease my public speaking students that when if they'd put canon with two N's on their exams, I would write boom in all capital (laughs) letters next to it. So we are not talking about the thing that shoots out the giant cannonball. We're talking about synonyms for canon would be things like tenets or main pillars of things that are so central to something it can't stand up without it. And the most of the the original use of this word or the most common use of this word outside of popular culture studies is biblical canon. It's usually used to discuss what counts as stories that are considered legitimate or extra to the different stories in the Bible. That is not where we're going with it, but it is an important part of understanding where the term comes from and why 
it's something that most disciplines will take up in their work. It's kind of where we're going, though. A yeah. little bit. But we're staying away from the Bible. We're, we're definitely saying. staying we're away from the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's probably wise. But it does have these religious connotations to it, particularly because for hardcore fans of any text, there is this deep personal connection to the text. Mm -hmm. And so what counts as the, for lack of better terms, the holy scriptures right. of that particular sect of mm -hmm. pop culture religion matters a great deal, especially if you think of something that is huge and transmediated. What I mean by that is storytellings across multiple different kinds of media. Mm -hmm. When you've got these huge properties, something like Star Wars, mm -hmm. Star Wars has films, it has novels, it has comic books, it has toy lines, it has video games, it has all of these different texts. And so what counts as quote unquote real matters a lot for how fans of that thing interact with each other and how they understand the text that they're dealing with. So in that respect, it does have quite a bit to do with its religious origins. Mm-hmm. Right. What, what is that text that is most revered by the group that is part of that fandom? Right. And if it lives outside of canon, we excise it. We kick it to the curb. Right. And in this case, you can think of, again, biblically, things like the Gnostic texts, mm -hmm. you know, the gospel according to Mary and so on. Mm -hmm. Those texts that were found in a cave right. uh, somewhere in the Middle East, those texts used to be a part of the Bible and then they weren't. Right. Yeah. For you listeners who might not be familiar with this, there aren't just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are right. a whole bunch of other ones. And it was a group of men's decision to sit down and decide what was going to go in and what was no longer going to count. And those priests, those high priests of that religion, were the ones who decided what counted as canon. Right. In the same way that in modern popular culture, there are high priests of the religion who attempt to make the decision as to what counts as canon and what doesn't. So the reason that we decided to have this conversation now largely had to do, I mean, it's been percolating forever, but I in particular wanted to have this conversation now because of the different Marvel films that have been coming out, the different Star Wars conversations that have been getting uglier over the last three years, and The Little Mermaid. Oh my god, oh my you, god. You can't have a black Ariel? That's not canon. The look on my face right now, you can't see it, but yes, exactly. So that wasn't even, we had already made the decision to record this episode before that whole mess blew up online. <laughs> yes. But I mean, it's, it's a conversation that is very, very present in popular culture studies and which is related. Has the episode about toxic fandom happened already? It has not. It's coming up later this season. Good, because what we're discussing about canon does have a lot to do with toxic fandom and something that Chris has definitely talked about before, which is sort of the policing of true membership in a fandom. So I love your example, Chris, about someone showing up to a Super Bowl party wearing a jersey. Can you can you yeah. share that example again? So this example is from an episode way back in season one. But essentially what I was saying was if I hold a Super Bowl party 
there are certain kinds of people who will show up at the party. So for my own reference, because of where I live and because of where I grow, I've grown up, let's say I have a Denver Broncos Super Bowl party. And some people are going to show up and they're going to be wearing Denver Broncos stuff because that's the team and this is Colorado and you support the home team and they don't really know anything about the Broncos. They don't really care about football that much. They're there for the party and to hang out with their friends. And those people largely go unmolested at a party. People just leave them alone. The second group of people are people who do like the Denver Broncos and know a little bit about the Denver Broncos. And so they, you know, will interact as much as they know. And those people also, once people find out they're just casual fans, they also kind of largely go unmolested. But let's say someone shows up at my party and they are wearing a vintage Steve Atwater Super Bowl jersey to my party. That's an invitation for the lore master to come up to them and institute the quiz. And every fandom has the lore masters whose job it is to interrogate people who are claiming particular kinds of knowledge within the fandom. You wear a Steve Atwater jersey to my Super Bowl party, you better be ready to, to deal with the quiz because it's coming. And if you say something like, I'm wearing this jersey because it was my dad's and, you know, he gave it to me and it reminds me of him, you probably get left alone. Mm -hmm. But if you say, yeah, I really like the Broncos and I've always liked the Broncos, the lore master's coming for you. And he's going to ask you about Steve Atwater and he's going to ask you about the hit on Christian Okoye and he's going to ask you about the Super Bowls and he's going to ask you. And when you he gets to the thing you don't know, that's his invitation to say, you're not a real fan. And you shouldn't be wearing that jersey. And he's policing the borders of true, quote unquote, Broncos fandom. Mm-hmm. And, and we this do this in, all, we do this in every, in every yeah. context. Yeah, I find I'm guilty of doing this when someone's like, oh, I'm such a huge Harry Potter fan. I've seen the movies like a hundred times. And I'm like, have you read the books? They're like, oh, no. And I'm like, okay. Then you're not a real fan. Even though I intellectually know I'm being a jerk in my brain, I still have that moral. And, and this is a part of canon, right? That if you are a part of that in-group, you feel this sort of sense of smugness or moral superiority. I'm a real fan. They are just pretending you're one of the church ladies mm-hmm. you're, oh my one God. The, you're one of the church ladies who goes to church four right. times a week and who works in the deacon's office and blah 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 and you're you're waiting for someone who is unfaithful to show their face in the pews so that you can publicly scorn them mm-hmm. it's the exact same thing and even if you don't go out into the streets like they're not a real fan it's still that sort of judgmental glint in your eye that Other people see it, even if you don't think they can. Absolutely. I do this all the time. I do this with Transformers. I'm a huge Transformers fan. Everybody knows that. You've been listening to the show for a while. You already know that. I do this all the time when I go up to someone and I'm like, oh, I really love the Transformers. And they say, me too. I say, oh, cool. Well, what was your favorite one? And when I was a kid, I collected Skywarps and I have every Skywarp ever made. And, you know, this is what my collection looks like. And I've read all these comics. And which was your favorite episode? They go, oh, I've only seen the Michael Bay movies. And I think you're, you're not a fan at all. Amateur. You don't even know what Transformers is. So I understand I am also one of the church ladies. I and we all are. I was like, I have never met someone who doesn't do this with something. 
Because that's the nature of fandom. And the nature of human nature. We like in-groups a lot. We like having those social relationships with other people and feeling good about ourselves and the security that we, we have a certain expertise or knowledge in a certain area. We are part of the tribe. Mm-hmm. And part of being in the tribe is you have to defend the tribe from interlopers. <laughs> right. But this is important because when it comes to then deciding what's canon, what counts, what's the real text, mm-hmm. there's some rules that go into that as a fan group. And there's some rules that have been changing now that we are in the Twitter era. Absolutely. Collective action from fans is so much easier now. Witness Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh my God, right? So for those of you who weren't following this story, there's a movie being made, a Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Sonic the Hedgehog is the Mario of the Sega company. Yeah. When Sega first came out... It was bundled with the game Sonic the Hedgehog. This is all the way back in the late 80s, early 90s. And there's this whole group of kids who grew up with Sonic. Sonic was then later made into a cartoon series and had a bunch of ancillary merchandise and has had multiple video games. And when filmmakers put out the trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog film a few months ago, fans lost their mind. Sonic looked wrong. I mean, he really looked wrong. Yes. Even as someone who's not a fan of Sonic the Hedgehog, I never really had, I never had a Sega or anything, but I was creeped out because you know, even if you don't know Sega, you know Sonic if you're a millennial. You know Sonic if you're anyone born after 1965. Right. You know, right. You know Sonic. Because his, his look has stayed pretty distinctive yes. the whole time. If you were a kid, a teenager, or in your early 20s, any time between 1988 and 2001, you know Sonic. And so because of that, there's this huge group of people for whom Sonic is a pretty core character. And he looked wrong. And Mm -hmm. fans protested. They got together, they petitioned, and the filmmakers withdrew the film and are going back and spending millions of dollars to re-CGI Sonic. A hedgehog. The hedgehog to be more acceptable to audiences because better spend the money and get it right now than release the film in the way it was, have the film tank, and Mm -hmm. never get to make another Sonic. Right, because if they do it right now, I mean, look at Detective Pikachu. They have opened the door for more Pokemon movies because they did such a good job. So you have to get the first one right, even if it means going back to the drawing board, literally in this case, and Mm -hmm. fixing your mistakes. So all of this to say that we're eventually, during this conversation, going to have to talk about how the rules for establishing canon have changed since Twitter has become a thing. Right. But... You were talking about the general rules. So when we say this is canon, this is what canon means, there's some general rules, some general principles that we, at least within the academic side of things, kind of accept as standard. Mm -hmm. Rule number one, and this is the most important one, this is the one that I work with actual media companies, people who produce media to understand. Rule number one is fans of any popular culture property absolutely know that property infinitely better than the people who create it Mm -hmm. because they're coming at it from a different space. 
the people who create a text believe that they have some sort of primary knowledge of the text, and they don't. Not in the same way that a hardcore fan does. This is why I'm super excited to later in this conversation talk about the J.K. Rowling problem. Well, that's where I'm going. Good. To the point where, you know, an author like George R.R. R. Martin, for example... <laughs> George R. R. Martin has, for years, employed these two guys whose whole job it is to tell him when he has violated the history that he wrote. In Game of Thrones. Because he doesn't remember. That's amazing. And he employs these two guys whose whole job it is to be his historians. His nerds. Of the fictional world he created. His nerds on retainer. Exactly. That's amazing. And I, I also, part of the reason we decided we wanted to do this episode now was to talk about Game of Thrones because... My conspiracy theory is that George R. R. Martin is the world's most masterful capitalist. I share, at least in what I believe is your theory, which is he intentionally did not tell them how the story was going to end so that they would screw it up so that he can come back later and say, here's the book. Here's, here's the book. Here's what right. really happens. Right. It's a moment when there's a tension between canon. These rules, I think, are, even though the fans know the fandom better than the author, there is a certain reverence for the author coming out and saying something. So Disney could say something up, down, and sideways. But if George Lucas says something about Star Wars, we tend to give that a lot more weight because he's the creator. Right? Same thing with Rolling. There's a reason people are obsessed with Pottermore, because it's, it's her. She's telling us stuff. Right, But on the other hand, there's also a sense in which canon has to be partially what came first. What happened first? Because that's sort of the foundation upon which everything that follows comes. So when you get something like this, the last season of Game of Thrones, you get this awesome canon conundrum in which the fans in general were dissatisfied because it was rushed, and because the ending was, generally speaking, a hot mess. It was rushed, although they had two years to get it done. Right, They, but they chose to make it eight episodes right. rather than to make it, you know, 12. Right. And when I say rushed, I mean they, they rushed the plot. They didn't rush the production. The production yes. was very, very not rushed. And so even though technically that should be the way that the ending, the canonical ending it may be that when Martin comes out with the book, which I, I have no doubt he will do, fans will use that as saying, oh, no, this is actually the canonical ending. HBO did their own thing with it and kind of ruined it. Right. Which is brilliant and confusing, and I love it. But it makes an awful lot of sense. Oh, yeah. It makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, George R. R. Martin is a is a genius of capitalism. Like he is a capitalist genius. <laughs> Thinking about think about it though. He knew people were gonna buy the series. He had a, a financial stake in the HBO series. And so why keep writing? Let the fans tell you what they hate and what they love, and then create the perfect sort of mix of your own creativity and fan service to sell another couple million dollars worth of books. And even more evil genius. Mm -hmm. is give them the ending you thought you would go with, let them make the TV show, see everybody hates it, and then go, oh, I guess I'm not doing that. It's the world's largest market test. It's amazing. Which is why, now that I'm thinking about it, it's why a show like Lost was a tragic failure. Right. In the final season of Lost, 
the writers could have literally gone to any one of three dozen fan websites <gasps> where people were constructing the conspiracies about what was going on in the show, taken any one of those plot lines, made it into the show, and produced a better ending than the one that they intended. Easily. That exists for every fandom. There's already... Yes. 40 million of those fan sites for Stranger Things 4, because there's almost certainly going to be a Stranger Things 4, even though I really wish they had just stopped at 3. Oh, no, there's going to be a 4. Yeah, and there's already, you know, who's this? Who's that? Oh, what about this? What about that? I mean, it's yes. it's one of those things where it would be a smart idea for someone to be, a, you know, what did I call it, a nerd on retainer? Yes, because fans understand the work better than the people who create it mm -hmm. because it's the very simple concept of two heads are better than one. Yeah. Or in this case, 30 million heads mm -hmm. are better than one. Yeah. Right. The collective wisdom of fandom will always be superior to the one person or two people in charge of creating a thing. Always. Right. And that's pretty well accepted within fandom studies mm -hmm. within within people who do work about fans on the academic side of things. Interestingly enough, not so much on the side of actual media content creators who still have this vague notion that they are singularly creating art and putting their message out into the world, which is not the way transmediated products work in right. contemporary society. So that's the first sort of big rule of canon. Right. The the creators will never outknowledge the fan community. Fans. Let's take a short break here. We'll be back in two and two. Hi. Just taking a quick break from the action to let you know about a really cool thing that is happening with the beginning of season three. And that is that we have launched a YouTube channel. That's right. All of your favorite Deconstruction Workers podcast episodes are now available via YouTube with some really cool visual inserts and examples of the things we're talking about, all kinds of cool stuff going on. So please go to youtube.com and search for Cool Channel Classroom or follow the link from the show's description or from the deconstructionworkers.com. Thanks. And now back to the show. Fans are very, very good at saying that's not what this character would do mm -hmm. or that's not how this storyline has been set up or that violates this history that I already mm -hmm. know about the world, mm -hmm. which is the job of canon. It's the job right. of it's the job of the high priests of fandom the lore masters to be able to go back into the text and use the text oftentimes against the text creator because mm -hmm. they know more. Right. Right. Which is why what text counts is important. Really that's, important. That's why, that's why what counts as canon matters. So rule number one, the fans will always know the property better than the creators. Yes. Rule two. Rule number two, which you've already alluded to, but they still care an awful lot what the creators have to say in a meta sort of a sense. That is, fans care a lot what creators have to say about the show outside of the context of the actual narrative. 
So fans care what the creator says when they go on Jimmy Fallon. They care what the creator says when they interview in Entertainment Weekly. They care what the creator says when they go on Twitter and just start making a bunch of random comments about their work. Right. Fans care about that an awful lot. Right. Until it violates rule number one. Yeah. A wonderful example of the violation of rule number one is, I mean, and of course I'm going to go this direction with it, but it is, it's, it is JK Rowling. It's oh, Pottermore. It's Fantastic Beasts. I mean, there's a whole big thing. I have not seen the second Fantastic Beasts. Oh, Lauren, you're not a real fan. Like, okay. <laughs> we can talk about that because to me, it's not important that I see Fantastic Beasts because that does not change my Harry Potter fandom. But apparently the characters in that can do magic in ways that no character could do magic before in that world, which violates what we know to be true of that world. Based on the canon of the Potterverse, Queenie Goldstein is the most powerful witch who has ever lived. Right, which is probably, unless that's where she's going with it, that's probably not true. It's probably just lazy. Exactly. Which is annoying. Which goes back to rule number one. But the best possible way to highlight rule number two as then applying back onto rule number one is that ridiculous article or tweet that sh- that Rowling put out about where they would go to the bathroom before <laughs> the plumbing was installed in Hogwarts. Who in the blue hell needs to know that? That's the sort of thing that in an attempt to reassert her authorial control over the work, she's trying to... I'm almost at a loss for words because it's so unnecessary. See, I don't ascribe that much malicious intent to it. Well, it's not malicious. I actually think she's trolling the lore masters. Do you? I do. I think she's trolling the lore masters. I think she's saying, oh, you think you know so much about Hogwarts? Where do they go to the bathroom? You know, you have a fair point there because I remember seeing an interview with Stephen Fry when he was talking about how she put a moment trolling him in every book after the third book, though he couldn't say the word pocketed it. He couldn't say that. And so when she told him, no, you can't change it, she then put it in every book knowing he'd have to narrate it for the British editions. There's also the first part of that story, which is... When he was approached to do the audiobooks in the first place, he trash-talked her an awful lot. Right, right. Well, he's, you know. He trash-talked her an awful lot. He was basically kind of patting her on the head like, oh, good luck with your little books here. Right. And then she told him no, and then she trolled him. Yeah. And if you've watched her exchanges with Piers Morgan, if you've watched her exchanges with a bunch of political figures in Great Britain, you know she is absolutely the pettiest of petty. Yeah. So it's not above her at all to publicly troll people. That maybe is not, like, to me, that's the most egregious example, but perhaps I think there's probably plenty of other examples of her work on Twitter and Pottermore that... Dumbledore is gay is a much bigger violation. Where do they go to the bathroom and they magic away the poop? That's her messing with the lore masters. That's her trolling Twitter. Dumbledore is gay is a much bigger violation. Yeah, and I think I probably took that for granted because it's been such a long time. and And people now just accept it as canon. No. Even though it's it's not necessarily canon. Real fans don't. <laughs> right, real fans, real fans. But it was one of the first times she had ever given this meta canon commentary. Yeah. And people accepted it as, oh, well, Rowling said he's gay, so she must have written him to be gay. Except for lots of people in the GLBT community went back into the text and said, wait a second, 
you never actually said that. And nor nor in any way hinted it even a recognizable way. In, no. Even in the most subtly recognizable way. It's, no, it's, it's not, not there. there. And we're not saying, oh, there can't be any gay characters. No, we're saying don't you don't get to take credit for <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying there can't be any gay characters. I'm saying you didn't write any. You didn't write it and you don't get to take credit for being progressive when you didn't do the work. You don't get to take credit for gay Dumbledore. You damn sure don't get to take credit for black, black Hermione. Hermione. Mm-hmm. Those are or for black James for that matter. Right. Those are things that fan communities have created as their own set of headcanons. Yes, which indicates that which you have pictured in your head as you're reading or watching. Right. Which, you know, for, so for me, for example, Rupert Grant, as much as I love him, and Chris and I have very different thoughts on that, um, <laughs> he he's not my Ron. My Ron in my head is a, a, a different, a completely different Ron because I grew up reading the books before the movies were a thing. Right. He's absolutely my Ron. Right. But he was my Ron before, primarily because I don't because like Ron. Because you don't Ron. like Ron. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, Yeah. So are there more are there more rules for us to discuss? We have rule one, fans know the property better. Yes. And they still care about what the author has to say unless it comes to affect rule number one. Right. So that's rule number two. Rule number three is a subtle one, but I think it's important, which is that the text itself dictates the canon. It dictates the borders of the canon. Which means that you can have multiple canons within the same property. Can you give an example, please? The perfect example for me is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. So I am, a, as I've said on the show before, I'm an original Ninja Turtles collector. I started collecting Ninja Turtles in 1984 when they very first came out. The text was very different then. It was a black and white comic. It was very violent. Hmm. It was... All of the turtles were very, they all wore the same color mask. All of their masks were red. They were very hard to tell apart within the text unless they spoke. Hmm. It was hard to tell which one was which. And it was a much more intellectual property. It was a much more intellectual. I mean, they they kill off Shredder in issue number five or six, I think. Wow. It was just a very different text. And I grew up reading those books and playing the role-playing game. The role-playing game comes out in, I think, 85 or 86. And those were my entry points into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And by the time I was in high school, I was mostly just reading the comic books. Hmm. When I got to high school is when external properties got their hands on Ninja Turtles. And all of a sudden, there were the really crappy dudes in rubber suits movies (laughs) there were the like cowabunga dudes ninja turtle cartoons ninja turtles began being used on all sorts of products and for me as a as a as an originalist i was like how are you introducing kids to this property right because it's been totally cuted down rather than violent mess Every one of the turtles is carrying a literal deadly weapon. (gasps) Deadly weapon. Raphael has two knives. Leonardo has two swords. Hmm. Donatello and Michelangelo have blunt force trauma (laughs) weaponry. They're kicking people in the heads. They're bouncing people off of their turtle shells. They are doing physical harm, physical violence. How are you translating that into a kid's property? And for me, the second 
that Cowabunga Dudes version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles popped into existence, my original text ended. Right. And a new set of canon was created right. in that moment for a completely different property that happens to share the same name. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny how sometimes that's allowed to happen and sometimes it's not. I mean, I read I started reading The Princess Bride when I was younger because I love mm-hmm. the movie so much. And it was so, so, so different that I just so I put different. it down. I didn't like it. Oh, I loved it, but I loved it well, in a I was, completely I was too young. different I was, way. I, I would like to go back to it. I still, It's still somewhere in my house, but I would like to go back and read it now. But I was young enough that I wanted to read the book version of the you know fun adventure caper that I got to watch on the TV. And I feel like, like you said, you love it for a completely different reason. I don't see people getting upset. It's almost like when the book... When one is outrageously more popular than the other one, it seems like people don't get maybe quite so defensive. I think it also depends on where you come into the text. You came into reading The Princess Bride as a kid. After I'd seen the movie. After you'd seen the movie. It's not a book written for kids. Right. I also came into The Princess Bride book after seeing the movie, but I was an adult when I Mm -hmm. read that book, and I was very familiar with William Goldman when I picked up that book, and so I was in a completely different headspace to be able to enjoy it as its own thing. Right. In a way that I wouldn't have been able to as a kid, which, which by the way, is the exact reverse of what I said about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If If I was one of these people who are right now in their late 20s, early 30s, and I went to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that I grew up with, I would probably go, yeah, it's probably good that they changed this thing because I don't like this at all. Right, because this is terrifying and isn't this supposed to be for kids? Exactly. Because now it is supposed to be for kids, and so it's a completely different market. It's a completely different market. Yeah. Although I will say there's a a really nice synergy that I'm back into Ninja Turtles right now um, in the comic book space because Kevin Eastman is back writing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's one of the original original creators. Um, And so he has sort of taken back ownership of that property. And it's a very, the comic books at least, Mm. are more like the comics I grew up with than the the Cowabunga Dudes Turtles. Mm. In one of the issues, I'm I'm not going to spoiler it too much, but in one of the issues over the last two years, one of the turtles dies. Oh my! So there's a it's a it's a very different text than than the original. Uh, Spoiler alert: it's a comic book. Nobody stays dead. Right, right. (laughs) But um, it was a moment. It was a moment where everyone was like, "Uh, "What? Like what just happened?" And he he stayed dead for a while. Mm -hmm. So. There, Nobody there was, stays dead. I just love that. Fit. I guess you're, I mean, you're not wrong. And that's why that's been, that's like my major critique of a lot of different shows. I'm like, no, stay dead. Let this be a teaching moment for humans about the fact that sometimes people actually stay dead. Since the 1940s, really, with Marvel, mm-hmm. if someone dies and stays dead, it's the exception. Not the, you're like, wow, oh, yeah. you actually oh, they really died. Dead? Wow, wow, yeah. Actually, wow. they really died. I didn't think that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
Gosh. They killed... Uh, everyone's been dead. Yeah. Captain America's been dead. Wolverine's been dead. Spider-Man's been dead. Everybody's been dead. Mm-hmm. But they're not killing off Wolverine. Right. They're not killing right. they're off They're killing Spider-Man. off and being dead aren't the same thing. They're not killing off Captain America because those are three of their biggest selling properties. Right. They'll be back. Right. Otherwise, you'll have a freaking misery moment, right, where some crazed fan kidnaps the author and forces them to fix right. what they've broken. It's like, it's like, you know, this is more recent for you because you recently finished out the property in a way that I had done, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But it's like the end of the fourth season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy's not dead. Right. You know how I know Buffy's not dead at the end of season four? Because the show's called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) Because if there's going to be season five, you know. (laughs) That's how I know. It's not called used to be Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But there's an argument to be made for Staying dead in some of these cases. I, you know, at some point things start to jump the shark and you're like, you maybe you should just stay dead. Right. And then, and that's not to say in every text death is impermanent, but in many texts, particularly heroic adventure texts, a, a death is not necessarily a death. Okay. So I want to go back just a couple steps to something you said, because I think it's a cool way to talk about uh, a more positive construction of canon into the spider verse. Okay. Hold that thought. Okay. Cause I really want to talk about into the spider verse, but we got to take a break. Okay. So we'll be back in two and two. Did you know that the deconstruction workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast. DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. So, Into the Spider-Verse, maybe the best animated film I have seen in my adult life. It was fantastic. I loved every second of it. And I don't know jack crap about the Spider-Man comic books at all. I don't know anything about them. So my one friend who's really into that universe, the bad guy, what was his name? The Kingpin. The Kingpin. I was like, he looks like a pimple. And so I kept (laughs) calling him the pimple guy. And my friend was getting mad because he's like, why don't you know who that is? It was like, because I have literally not one time in my whole life read one of these comics. Never. Not ever. But I enjoyed every second of it because they did such an amazing job taking things that would be known pieces of canon for an aware audience and knitting them together in a way that made it really exceptional for a lay audience. And the point of making it so accessible to a lay audience is this dual understanding that you will get the lore masters Mm -hmm. in the audience and you need to please them, but also you have an opportunity to set up a break point for a brand new canon. Right. It's also a moment to introduce people who turn into overnight mega fans to six different comic book series that they may then go want to buy. Absolutely. And toys and costumes Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. all kinds of products. Plus it's an opportunity for you to introduce Miles Morales as the quote unquote real Spider-Man so that the Peter Parker people 
will continue to buy Peter Parker, but people who want a Spider-Man who represents them are perfectly willing to go and buy Miles Morales Mm -hmm. because he looks like them. Amazing. So it's from a marketing standpoint, it's brilliant. It's also brilliant from a corporate social responsibility standpoint, or at least from a corporate social awareness standpoint Mm -hmm. of the fact that you can take a major character and make him look like somebody else. Right. It also allows you to sell one of right now Marvel's bigger sellers, not biggest, but bigger sellers is Spider Gwen. Mm-hmm. It allows you to sell that property. People love Gwen. Yeah. They, it's because she's they awesome. love that character. So it gives you a lot of different avenues. I mean, they even brought in Spider Ham, which is Oh an my inside, God, so which funny. is an inside joke for Spider Man fans. Yeah. But also Kind of a funny character. So we're talking about canon. Yeah. And the way that canon operates. So all of this to say, what counts as the thing is really important if you want to discuss the thing. Mm-hmm. Which is why people get so rankled when authors mess with the thing yeah and this is this is jk rowling for sure Mm -hmm. but for me the ultimate expression of this is george lucas right right because rowling goes on twitter and says dumbledore's gay and we all go no well maybe we could fight about that or whatever what she doesn't do is go back into deathly hallows rewrite halt production of the text Rewrite the book and then force everyone to read the new one and refuse to release any more books with the old stuff in it. That's very different. Right. And that's what George Lucas did. Which is creepy when you think about it. But his argument was, it's mine. His argument was, it's my movies. I couldn't make them the way I wanted to in the 1970s and 1980s. Now I have the technology and I'm going back into my movies and making it the way I want it. Mm-hmm. And this is where he violates rule number one. Yeah. Because fans said, no, Ooh. you can't change the text because it's not yours. It's ours. The second it left your hands, it ceased to be yours. You gave it to us and you don't have the right to make us now go back and view your version just because you feel like changing it. Ugh. Oh my gosh, right. Because he is not actually a high priest of the culture within the community that he created. If it's just yours, don't try and make money off of it from us. Just watch it in your basement. But it's not even about making money off of us because there are some people who would go back and watch that text or whatever. It's about you claiming ownership over the culture itself. And you don't have that. Right. No creator has that right. Right. It's not, it is not the place of George Lucas to say, now these new texts are the only real texts. Right. He doesn't get to decide and that. So do. some people would, would argue with you and be like, no, he does because he's the creator. Chris and I, and this has come up in past episodes, so forgive us if you've heard this before, but we both subscribe to something called the death of the author. It's something that means what he has already said. Once you hand it to us, it's not yours anymore. 
and what you have to say about it doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's just that it doesn't, doesn't matter affect the original more. thing you gave us. Yeah. It doesn't matter more. Yeah. It doesn't supersede what you gave us. Exactly. And it's not like we're going to some alternate text. It's not like we're going to some alternate text. We're going to your text. Right. <laughs> but we're right. going to your text in the way that you originally produced it. And that's the text. Right. And it's not not the text just because you don't want it to be. So it occurs to me that this conversation is becoming much larger than I think maybe either one of us expected. And I believe we are at the point where we are going to have to have our very first two-part episode of the Deconstruction Workers. I think we're going to have to roll over to a part two. Awesome. So for those of you who'd plan to listen to both of these in a row, go get yourself a cup of coffee, maybe take a pee break, and we'll be back with you pretty soon. That's right. Or if you're driving around in the car, just load up part two. We'll be back with you in a week or in your regular life, maybe five minutes. Depends on how you plan to listen. In either case, thanks for joining us on this first episode of the Deconstruction Workers for season three. And we will be back with you in seven days. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.